Welcome to Lock Sportscast, your weekly source for Lock Sport news, and in this case, an interview. I'm your host, Charles Current. Today's episode is a conversation with Pat Watson of Uncensored Tactical. Pat, as you might guess, runs the website uncensoredtactical.com, which can also be found at utac.io, utac.io. He hosts the Uncensored Tactical podcast. He's the author of the book Tactical Lockpicking, a systemized approach for responding to locked obstacles during emergencies. He provides in-person training via his course, Tactical Lockpicking, How to Enter and Escape Through Locked Obstacles. If you want to check him out, I will have links in the show notes. For full show notes with links... You can visit thelocksportscast.com. You can find this show on most podcast apps, YouTube, and at thelocksportscast.com. Before we get started, I'd like to say a quick thank you to this episode's producers. Executive producers for this episode are my Patreon subscribers. We have Medler, Pandafrog, Michael Gilchrist, Starrylock, Williams Brain, To Be Deciphered, Lebon's Locksport Journey, Pat from Uncensored Tactical, and the latest is Bill N. Bill uh, joined... This month with a generous pledge of $25 per month. Uh, so thank you very much, Bill. I, I don't even know how to thank you. He doesn't even have a site for me to link to. He's just a generous patron. I'd also like to say a special thank you to this week's guest, Pat Watson. Uh, for full disclosure, I just need to make it clear that I've received no direct compensation for this interview. However, as stated above, Pat Watson is a patron of this podcast at the $5 a month level. And I am also a patron of his podcast at the $2 a month level, so there's a $3 a month discrepancy in my favor there, just for full disclosure. In the podcast, we talk about his book and my thoughts about it, but to be clear, I purchased the book with my own money. It's not a review copy or anything. I finished reading the book just a half hour before the recording of this talk. The comments about the book that I put in here are my own. They are my uh, real thoughts. After just finishing the book, I power read it, uh, except for the first chapter, which I had read earlier. I read the rest of the book in the morning before we recorded this interview. And with that, here is the conversation with Pat Watson of Uncensored Tactical. So why don't we start with uh, what I usually start with, which is tell us a little about you and how you got into this with you. Normally I say, how did you get into lock sport? But in this case, it's how did you get into doing all these real entry techniques and all that stuff? Sure. Uh, the very short story, I spent about a decade doing, uh, ooh, that plus. I spent about a decade doing military and law enforcement work. Uh, when I was a kid, my dad was a cop. So I always saw like the credit card and the door jam trick. Uh, we, he always had a, a slim gym in the car so we could help out, help out stranded motorists. Um, I also saw, that handcuffs could be broken out of at a very young age. I was given that lesson as a, as a kid, I think around 10 years old or so. So I knew these things existed when I was a kid and that helped a lot. There you go, sweetheart. Great. Good girl. Plus. And I was primed for it. So the lesson was, uh, he gave me was if you know how to get into these things or how to get through locked obstacles, then you might know better how to prevent these things from happening. So he kind of explained that nugget to me, my old man. So that stuck with me for a long time. Uh, while I was in the military, a friend of mine went to uh, 
what they call SEER school, S-E-R-E, Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. Uh, and he went to a, a class that taught a little bit about the urban survival. And they taught him some basic lockpicking stuff. And he came home from the school and showed me. Um, and I was kind of reconnected with that path. And I was like, oh, well, what a great reminder. Here's a chance for me to put that stuff back into my life that I saw growing up. And so uh, I probably started getting heavily back into this, maybe one of my first few years in the military. I am largely self-taught, although I did go to some private professional training schools to learn more. Uh, and then my three years, uh, two or three years that I spent as a local police officer, I really, really sharpened the edge with this skill set. Uh, so I love lock sport. I love the single pin picking. I think is great. I don't do a lot of it, um, but I understand the concept and I can work my way through some lower medium security locks. Um, but I teach a, a spectrum or a, a system of analysis for how to make the best possible entry through locked obstacles. So it's not just here's the tool, here's the lock. How do we pair them together? It's, well, which lock should I attack first? Should I attack it now or should I move to the next door and try that? Which I'm sure you saw some of that in my book. Um, so that is hopefully a pretty quick intro for how I ended up here. Uh, I gather from your book, you spent quite a bit of time doing this when you were on the police force too, right? Yeah, a lot. I was uh, the go-to guy for it. So I always had a full loadout in my trunk. Um, and people would call me constantly and say, Hey, uh, we need you to switch to the private channel. So I'd go and they'd go, uh, we need your, uh, help here. And I just, I, you knew what that was for. It was either a, I was in trouble or B, they wanted me to use my lock picking skills, but it was really common. And I, th I tracked it. So we have our in-car laptops. And every time I went to a call where I could use that or where they asked me to use that, I would do a little note and I'd say this date, this time, this location, I did a lock pick entry thing. So for my own records, I tracked it. And, uh, when I scroll back through that, it's, it was about once a week. So if you do the math two to three years at once a week for a field extra for, you know, field results, that's for a field lot. testing. Uh, there was a lot of learning, a lot of failures. So I'm not perfect. Um, I mess up all the time, uh, but I learned a lot from that. So the curriculum that I teach is not just based off of, Hey, this can open that. It's also a big kind of warning about these are some failures to avoid. Yeah, I noticed I'm that. I'm to help people with that. You definitely do. A, uh, I really appreciate that you do a good job of covering mm -hmm. the, the failures and what you learn from them. Mm -hmm. It's not just, here's my success. Here's my success. You know, it's, this is a success. And then this was a failure, yeah. but this is what I learned <laughs> from that, you know? Yeah. I, I think that's kind of rampant. Uh, a lot of people see that. Uh, I think kind of just really modern America, they kind of see, oh, we need to do it right. We need to pass the test. But if you kind of open your mind up to failure is okay, if we use it as a tool, I think is a really nice positive way to look at it. Yeah. A lot of people are uh, afraid to fail, but mm -hmm. failure is a big part of real advancement. I mean, you can learn in my experience, you can learn from your successes, but you learn a lot more every time you fail. <laughs> so. Well, yeah. And that's, I think that's in the book. You, when, when you do succeed, all you get to do is put a tally mark in the win column. There, but there's no incentive to change. So the real value is if you fail, now you have to recalibrate. You have to add. You have to subtract. You have to adjust. So winning is good. Uh, but when you lose, it gives you a chance to adjust much more. Yeah. As long as you uh, embrace the failure and really analyze mm -hmm. it. If you don't just kind of go, oh, that sucked and move, you know, put it in the back of your mind, you won't learn anything. So, mm -hmm. so this whole, uh, your website, Uncensored Tactical, and your podcast, mm -hmm. 
How did that come about? Uh, sure. So probably the biggest reason that that came about was a lot of people uh, in the general public that are not military, not law enforcement, and then that are not first responders. <clears throat> um, it's kind of a little like a public service announcement. It's it's shocking when people hear how those things work behind the scenes. And anyone in your audience that is in the military or in a first responder job, I think will agree that. Good girl. Great. They'll agree that you can attend training that's government sponsored, government sanctioned, given by the government and your instructors that work for the government. They'll say something along the lines of, well, we're supposed to teach you tactic A to stay alive. And they'll go, but we're not supposed to teach you tactic B, which will really save your life. Hint, hint. So these things happen all the time. So you're actually restricted sometimes in government jobs from teaching the most applicable and the most efficient techniques. So I started my website to give back to that community and to the general public and to say, let me give you, even if it's not training I'm giving you, let me just give you insight in a way that, you know, most bureaucracies just can't give it to you because of policy and red tape and all those things. So I just wanted a kind of an unfiltered place where I can go. I think this about that tactic do with, do with that what you will. In my job, I do have some ability to, to, or some need sometimes to get past lock gates, um, mm -hmm. lock doors, but cause I'm a first responder of sorts for a private industry. But mm -hmm. the, uh, the the big thing that getting into Locksport, when I first got into Locksport, I thought, oh, this is going to be great because this is going to make it easy. I won't have to get them bolt cutters out every time I want to get past yeah. this gate. But uh, it's a it's a very, very different prospect uh, trying to actually get into a real world lock. <laughs> yeah, I don't the, think most the, people uh, really appreciate that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and that's one thing I've picked up a lot from your podcast and uh, your book is all those little tips that, you know, I had slowly started to learn because I started, once I realized that I started practicing, but there's a lot more in there than I had ever even thought of that just, you can tell there's well, a lot of well, experience there. And uh, thanks. So your podcast has how many episodes now? Uh, I'm nearing the 200 mark. I think I'm in the 160s now. Oh, and so you started that how long ago? Cause she, uh, about th three years ago ish. Okay. Nice. Um, I've had, I've had sections where I go consistently once a week and then sometimes twice a week. And then sometimes I take a break for a month. So it hasn't been perfectly consistent, but I average about a podcast a week. So do you mostly do this, uh, for the lock picking side of things? Is that mostly for your training or do you also just do it for fun or have you ever tried just the lock sport side of it? So I've never, I have never attended a lock sport event. I would really like to, I think it could really up my single pin picking skills. Um, and I, I introduce single pin picking at the end of every course that I teach. Um, I teach, so the first thing I start with is just simple raking with padlocks. Um, and I quickly turn that into case studies where the lock is mounted onto an object where I say, great, now this is really different, isn't it? Um, and then I do multiple different attack methods on that padlock where I'll say raking's good. If it doesn't work, hey, this uh, shim technique on the shackle might work quicker. Or, you know, you can completely bypass that. And just if it's on like a zippered bag, like luggage, you just pop the zipper open instead of messing with the lock. So we kind of go through steps of immediately, here's a quick down and dirty. Here's how you rake open a lock. And then we move to, but you have to assess the whole target. 
at the end of my course, I go, here's some advanced stuff. Like here's your comb attack, your overlifting. Here's your, um, here's your bump gun, your snap gun, whatever you want to call it, bump keys. And then I'll say, Hey, here's single pin picking. And I'll kind of use some diagrams and I'll talk about the science of picking kind of at the end, because I really want to give people, I really want to give my students the art form where I want to say, feel your way through this lock. And now we can refine that if we know better what's happening on the inside. And I've found that if I do it the opposite way where I go, let me show you the science. Here's how a pin stack looks. Here's how a spring works. Here's the zigzag in your, in your tumbler or your cylinder, your, um, the plug. And I'll say, because of the machining that creates these little shelves and there's two pins and you separate them. If I start with that, I start to lose people. And it's funny because if I start with that, I also see their hands move differently. So if I say, okay, put your tension wrench in, put your pick in. Now that you know the science, kind of just jiggle those pins around. And they won't. They won't jiggle the pins. They'll go, they kind of get this funny look on their face. And they kind of, they just put too much tension. And they're, you can, they're thinking with their eyes. And they're, I'm like, no, just rake the pins. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. But I have to get the thing on the ledge. And I'm like, no, 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 just rake. Just feel it. And they won't. So I usually start with the feel and the art form. And I move into the science at the end of my course. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I caught that on your, uh, in your book that it's very, I don't know if that's the same layout you do kind of with your courses, but it, you start w- more with general stuff and the whole process mm-hmm. of gaining entry versus just, then you get to the more detailed stuff at the end. The way I captured your book is it's more about the process and how to think about tackling the problem mm-hmm. versus just picking or bypassing a lock, right? Is that kind of what you were going for? Absolutely. A hundred percent. It does you no good to have, you know, a hook pick or a lifter pick and a tension wrench to walk up to a lock to maybe waste 10 minutes, 20 minutes on a single pin picking attack when you could go zero, zero, one, zero, zero, two. Oh, look, we're in. <laughs> yeah. Or just, yeah. Bypass or, that one. Or just pull a pin out of a gate or just bypass, do whatever, you know, but <laughs> it, I try to prevent tunnel vision and I try and uh, lock picking. So I just had an interview yesterday where someone asked me the question. They said, I get the feeling that lock picking is really 10% of what you teach in your courses. And I was like, well, for marketing, that's terrible. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> but <laughs> in reality, yeah, I do teach you the methods for entry. Um, but I'm teaching a full a system of how to assess something so that you can gain entry. So yeah, I do teach the lock picking. Um, but it's, it's so much more. And in the book, I said, imagine going to an EMT school and they show you how to do CPR. They show you how to put in an IV, but they don't really show you how to assess a target or a target, assess a patient that's laying on the floor. Like you walk up and you go, should I do CPR? Should I give them an IV? No, like we have to find out what's going on. We have to choose the best you know, course of action. We have to save their life. That's the goal. The goal is not apply CPR. The goal is save the life. So you need a full spectrum analysis for how do I analyze this target? How do I assess it? What should I do first? What should I do second? You know, how do we troubleshoot? That's really the value. Yeah, yeah. I uh, when I was reading it, I was coming at it from the uh, perspective of an EMT, and the mm-hmm. process you laid out just kind of I mentally put into okay, yeah, we're gonna do scene safe, and then we're gonna assess the patient. Safe, we're yeah. just gonna look assess at the, the patient, patient head okay, to toe, sweep real quick, and then move from there. And it, I was able to translate that actually really well. Awesome. So I, I think it was, <laughs> it's really well uh, laid out. I think you put a lot of you. good stuff in there. Um, 
here I am just gushing over your book, but I just finished reading I'm, I'm it. Honored. So literally, I'm honored. Thank you very much. <laughs> it was uh, 35 minutes before you showed up. Nice. I finished that book. <laughs> wow. And that's, I, so, so the only complaint I've had so far um, is that it's hard to read in one chunk where people are like, I started and they're like, I just, but I need to digest. Like I need to wait a minute. They're like every chapter. I'm like, look at there's value and value and value. And it's so densely packed. And they're like, I just, I couldn't do it all in one sitting. And it's, I think it's close to 300 pages, if not, you know, more or less, I can't remember. Yeah. The book is for me, I've actually found it really easy once I had time to sit down and just read it front to back. Mm-hmm. Um, and admittedly, that's probably partly because I come from the Locksport world. So the picking stuff was already fairly familiar. I, I come from a first responder viewpoint. So I've already addressed some of those issues that you already discussed on. I was, but the, the systemized approach and a lot of the details were very useful for me. So <laughs> anyway, so that type of stuff is uh, what I was looking for in the book is more of that, that approach how to look at the situation and, uh, mm-hmm. and deal with it. So I really got all of that out of it that I wanted. So I, I think it's a great book for anybody who's a first responder. It's yeah top notch for that. So that's, that's my two target audiences for that. One is largely the first responders. Um, it, and primarily because, um, and the guys over at coastal fire training, they have an Instagram page is pretty active. They do a really good job of teaching something similar to what I teach. Um, and their whole purpose is firefighters will show up on scene and go, oh, there's smoke, kick the door in. Uh, but what they teach is what they call respectful entry. So it's some different techniques than I use, uh, and it's through a different scope, but it's real similar in which the less property damage we can cause while still being efficient and timely, the better. Um, it looks better for your department. There's less of a liability for money and um, uh, you know, paying for stuff that you break if, if your department happens to do that. And it's also better for the homeowner. I mean, imagine if you're not home and there's smoke in your house or apartment. Uh, and if it happens to, for some reason, not be your fault or not be because of a fire or, you know, it would suck to come home to a broken door. It's just laying off the frame that you now have to fix yourself. So uh, the Coastal Fire guys, they teach something similar to me. Um, and while I'm not against kicking in a door, I think it's great when the time and, and place is right. But I try to focus on that most minimally uh, destructive techniques i forget why i started talking about that but that's where we ended sorry (laughs) no that's fine um i I forget was if it was you i heard it on your podcast or where i heard it but the the example of the little old lady who has to call 911 you know because of a medical thing if the door is locked and she's not able to get to the door if you bust that door in then while she's off at the hospital getting treated Mm -hmm her her house or her apartment you know are you going to secure it before you leave or are you just going to leave it vulnerable or yeah who knows roll the dice right you just hope you get lucky that someone makes it right after they've you know of course saving a life is the utmost importance right but it depends on timing and and the timing is really important too so quick do you need to get in and what's the risk of the patient being on the other side mm-hmm. of the door, if you go barging through there, are you going to hammer them with the door? So, uh, so of course, the, the whole point of, of this is just being, not just being responsible, but being reasonable, right? And doing your due diligence. If we have to get in right now, and if it's safe to do so, and if a destructive entry is the fastest route, maybe we do that. 
if not, if any of those things are a no, then we go, okay, we have a second to breathe. Let me assess some of these different entry points and see what we can do. Right. I think it's, it's much better for everybody. And sometimes it looks really cool to take out your tools and go, oh, got it. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's one thing I I can only imagine because I've actually never practiced uh, being an EMT in private practice or in, in the public sector. I've always mm -hmm. I got it as a job requirement for the position I was going for at this facility and I actually learned to love it. But <laughs> at first it was just this is a job requirement. You got to do this. You have to have your shirt within a year. Um, and but so my approach is probably different because my approach mm -hmm. has always been the company hired me to make sure that those employees get the care they need. And if I have to cut the chain, cut a hole in the fence, bust a door down, you know, I've never really had to do it other than cutting chains. But my view has always been the company hurt the employee or whatever. <laughs> My goal is to get to the employee and do what's best for them. That's why I'm here. And if I have to damage the company's property, they, they have people to fix it. So mm -hmm. I, I've been a lot more liberal with cutting locks and chains than <laughs> probably would be on the <laughs> yeah. outside. But, uh, but it does give me a better way to think about it and some more options now. So, Well, well that's the purpose. The book is laid out specifically for that in the the curriculum that I teach is specifically principle based. Um, one of those, one of those principles is it should apply to more people than just first responders. And it should be a baseline that you can apply differently if your job or your lifestyle requires it. So, uh, if you want to be a locksmith, uh, taking my course or re reading my book would be a great start to give you a really good foundation at how to get through obstacles. And Absolutely. then you can go do your locksmith thing. If you wanted to be in lock sport, Sure, you can take one of my courses and you, you get a leg up. You'd start with, I know how to open a lock. Okay, great. Um, if you want to be a like a breacher on a SWAT team or if you want to knock down doors as a firefighter, yeah, knowing this stuff would be great. It might, it might be much, much better. Instead of hitting this door six times with a battering ram, you just take a credit card out of your pocket and go, oh, we're in. I slipped the latch. So some, the purpose is, it's principle-based. You should be able to teach my techniques to others once you've learned it. You also should be able to take our, my techniques from the course, and you should be able to, on the phone, explain it to someone on scene, even if they don't know the skill set. They can be your eyes and ears because you know the content. The content is laid out in the right format that you can categorize it in your brain. You can explain it to others. So while you're, even before you get to scene, you can have people maybe make a successful entry just by explaining what to do or what to look for. Um, and if you just want to be self-reliant and take these skills, you now don't have to call a locksmith, don't have to pay for a locksmith, don't have to wait for a locksmith. Some of those things are, are really valuable. So I wanted to give people a baseline that they can apply in a number of different ways in their life. So I, I wanted it to be very flexible. Yeah. And I think you even state that in the book. Take what applies to you, mm -hmm. uh, add what is specific to your situation, throw out what doesn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Pretty well lay that out there. So. Yeah, I can see this being handy for a lot of different groups. The uh, the prepper, survival types, um, mm -hmm. anyone involved, especially anyone involved in fire, EMS, police work, yeah. any of those fields. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of different people. I mean, if you're a handyman, uh, anything. Yeah, absolutely. I have a, a course uh, pending for uh, real estate agents. 
they're in and out of houses all the time and they use those little uh, key lock boxes on the handles with the punch buttons on them. And sometimes they're making adjustments or changes to the property. Sometimes they're changing the keys, you know, for new new owners. So I have, of course, lined up for some of them soon. But yeah, tons of people this would apply to. So what kind of uh, groups have you taught in your courses? I know you've made reference to some more tactical groups, but Mm -hmm. sounds like real estate all the way up. So it sounds like you're pretty broad Mm -hmm. spectrum. Uh, the, the purpose of my content was that I teach the same content to every single person in my course, no matter if you're fire, military, law enforcement, super secret spy, or, you know, housewife, doesn't matter. Um, I do teach some military and law enforcement courses that are requested from an agency for me to come in and teach. Uh, but I don't do the, um, I don't have any of the, you must be this type of person to attend. So I'm, I'm very open enrollment. Um, I have taught my first course was just my first official paid course that I taught was actually on a deployment. I was in Guantanamo Bay. I was there for nine months and I had been doing this skill set for a long time. I knew quite a bit about it and I was really just starting to shape the curriculum to get it laid out the way I wanted. So it was like super low cost. And I was like, I'll give you, I think I was like, I need, I'm looking for like, I don't know, five to 10 people and I'll just teach you like a la carte. Like if you got 30 minutes to hang out, let's do it. If you got two or three hours, you want to come over to my place and I'll lay the locks out on the table and we train for two or three hours. You got it. Like very, very open, very easy. So I trained about 12 people when I was overseas, uh, stuck on base with nothing to do. And I trained about 12 people at 50 bucks a pop. And I was like, great for 50 bucks. You get access to me for nine whole months. I'm like, can't get better than that. Uh, so I had lots of students. We did lots of techniques, lots of training. We threw a lot of ideas into the lab where they were like, hey, could we do this? I'm like, I don't know. Let's try it. Uh, so I taught that it was a bunch of active duty military guys on base. I taught. Then I did a group of as soon as I got back in the States, I started really ramping up the website. And I taught my first course after that was a group of, uh, I guess what you would call a mutual aid group. So people in a community that they they meet up, they have like a meeting place, they have discussions, they have uh, roles within the group. And this group had happened to have attended a very expensive rifle course year after year after year. And the leader of that group contacted me, just a bunch of civilian dudes uh, with all sorts of different backgrounds, but they met up together, they lived near each other and they supported each other with you know their farms or whatever. And so the leader of that group met with his guys and he's like, listen, he's like, we pay a lot of money to do a lot of rifle shooting every year. And he's like, it really doesn't change. He's like, it doesn't change our capabilities. He's like, it's good because we practice. He's like, but it's nothing new. He's like, why don't we get this guy in here and he'll teach us how to get through a locked obstacle if we have to get to a gunfight so that, you know, if you're locked out of the the gunfight, you're no good in the gunfight because you're stuck or not gunfight, but any pick any term, right? Like there's a fire in the field and the cattle are in there and we have to drive our trucks in. Oh no, we forgot the key. Like, do you smash the gate? Uh, should you? I don't know. So he he told his guys and his guys all agreed. And I taught that mutual aid group. It was really nice. It was really cool. Uh, the guy's still a good friend to this day. I just got a message from him on, on Instagram like an hour ago. Um, and then I taught a few uh, law enforcement groups. Um, I didn't really teach two agencies, quote unquote, but a lot of people that worked for agencies would call me for private training. Uh, so law enforcement um, and then several one-on-ones locally. Those are really easy to put together. So if you're anywhere near Tampa, Florida, uh, for now, because I might be moving soon, 
if you're anywhere near Tampa, Florida, uh, just shoot me an email and I'll give my details at the end of the episode. Um, one-on-ones are super easy to set up, especially if they're local. Um, and then I did teach a special forces unit overseas in Europe, uh, last month. So that was, my, that was by far the biggest course that I've taught. It was very enjoyable. Um, very different than an American experience, like just the country, the people, the environment. It was just, <laughs> um, it was really cool. The, the locks too. Yeah. And the locks were a little different. So they, they had a lot of, uh, God, what are they called? Um, those zero cylinders, lots of, lots of oh. zero cylinders, um, lots of very paracentric keyways, lots of zigzags, lots of small spaces. So very diff- definitely not raking those things open. Um, and if you're going to single pin pick, you need to be very advanced and you have to know innately what's happening inside those cylinders. But we were in the facility we were at was an active duty military facility and they had some sensitive uh, materials inside, but they gave me carte blanche. They were like, you know, go through the whole facility. It's all yours. And I tried to make access to a bunch of different doors. And some of them I was like, oh boy, I don't know. But going away from the attack in the keyway, there were still some ways that we can get inside. So the bypass is really important. The social engineering, you know, choosing a, a four-digit code, hacking a four-digit code, researching a four-digit code, uh, attacking the latches, really important. Finding an open window, crazy important. So uh, those yeah. are some of the examples of some of the people that I've taught. Yeah, that's where you really have to use your other skill sets, I would think, because, mm-hmm. yeah, we, in a lock sport, we trade some of those locks and we get a few of them and... <laughs> <laughs> yeah they definitely uh definitely will test your skills i got a i got a new reddit account i have to start ranking up again in my belt rank but um excuse me i'm sorry uh i have opened a an american 1100 american 700 single pin picking like two or three times but that was like a year ago and like that's kind of the top of my limit for single pin picking so i am i am not the world's best single pin picker i happily admit that well um, but I, I do understand the concept the uh, if if you're able to get an 1100, um, in my personal thoughts, you're mm-hmm. you're you're way above average. You're definitely advanced because <laughs> you know that's kind of like a milestone. You know, you start going through yeah. doing mm-hmm. your master locks and your quick sets, and your, you start your master number threes. Your master one forties are a little more tough, yeah. And then you the get a little ones. more advanced with your your spools. You know, a little you know, mm-hmm. like my. Uh, first experience was leg keyways with spools and you, you figure that out and how the counter rotation works but when you get to the the master locks with with the, all their serrated especially if you know with one with mostly serrated pins mm-hmm. it really teaches you to pay attention to the feel and careful manipulation which is not something i would ever want to do in the field <laughs> I, I got a comment here too that fits in pretty good i intentionally do not cover nomenclature at the beginnings of my courses. Um, and I also, um, uh, I forgot what I was going to say about in addition to that, but, uh, there's a reason I don't, oh yeah. And I don't, I don't think it's a necessity for me personally to really graduate up into that single pin picking world to get that, you know, that black belt level on Reddit. Um, and that's, that's for a reason. That's because when my students come into my course, I'm able to communicate with them in mostly layman terms. So the way I'm speaking to you right now is the same way I speak to my classes. Um, And a lot of what I do is based, a lot of the ways that I teach is based off of my view of failures of other instructors. 
Um, and everybody learns differently. I get that. Some people like to be yelled at like boot camp, and like, pick up the lock, pick up the rake. Rah. Yeah. But that's more common in things like shooting schools. But I do base a lot of the ways that I teach off of what doesn't work for me. So when a student comes in, I think it would be almost detrimental if I said, Hey, you need this specific number tool, name, depth, gauge, thickness to use on this lock. And, you know, reset the third pin with counter rotation. And that one's a spool. Like I think my students, I think they would have a diminishing return at that point. They'd be like, uh, they're not going to uh, understand it at that point. Anyway, it's too much for a beginning mm-hmm. picker to start off with. So the purpose is to make this wildly accessible to the general public. Like as soon as you sit down, I don't do introductions. I don't do PowerPoints. As soon as you're in the chair and the clock on the wall goes, boom, 8 a.m., 8 o'clock in the morning, I go, hey, is everybody here? Great. Pick up the lock, pick up the rake, let's go. And they all get a successful entry and we keep, we keep moving. So the goal is to make everything I do very accessible. Um, so that's one of the reasons uh, I'm not really, I'm, I'm about to take someone's course. Someone on Instagram has a, a single pin picking course that they offer and I'm, I'm about to purchase it just to level up a little bit, just to kind of sharpen myself. But I am in no rush to be a black belt single pin picker. Yeah. Uh, and that's because I want to still be able to talk to my audience and say, yeah, that's super, super duper secure lock. You could pin pick it. So that, that kind of just doesn't work for the people that I want in my courses. I want people that have minimal or low experience. Um, and if you are experienced, I could still give you things to keep you busy. Like I have some some high security cylinders that I can throw onto a door and go, great, have at it. But the purpose is medium and low skill levels. Some people really get how to explain it in an in a easy manner for people to, that are new to it to understand. And then others, mm-hmm. um, you start getting too technical. And you're telling them, you're talking about things that they don't have the concepts of yet. So... Mm-hmm. It really, it overwhelms some of the new pickers, I think, when people start talking about, oh, a counter rotation and yeah. I thought, I thought you said the lighter tension, the better. So I've been, I've been really light this whole time and it won't open. And I'm like, press hard. Oh, it's open. (laughs) Yeah. That feather. Oh, wait, the cylinder's sticking a little bit. Just push it harder. Yeah. That's, that's a big one. Um, And I have to admit, I totally neglected learning raking. I was pushing my oh. way up the belt. It, well, no just learning single pin picking and pushing my way up to to the red belt and then went yeah. to try and do some stuff, you know, on a padlock in the real world and went, <laughs> I can't, I can't get this. And I pull out my, uh, my Sparrow's uh, coffin key, uh-huh. <laughs> stick it in there, wiggle a little bit, pops open. I'm Boom, like, right open. Uh, That's great. I need to go back to school. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I have heard that before. It's rare, but I have heard that before where people go, uh, yeah, one of my students who now is my uh, assistant in my online course, he said the same thing. He's like, I, he's like, I single pin picked and single pin picked and single pin picked. And I took your course and I was like, what is this raking thing? Oh my God, it's so fast. <laughs> well, and the other thing that I quickly realized, um, the second I tried to apply these skills in real life, single mm-hmm. pin picking, especially on any lock with more than just a couple of pins, takes a lot of fine motor skill and attention. Yeah. And once you get out there, your adrenaline's pumping. Most of your fine mm-hmm. motor skills have gone away. Um, <laughs> you're cold, it's raining, some, you, have, you know, gloves on, anything like that. And it just destroys everything you've learned. And you got someone breathing over your neck going, oh, what are you doing? Oh, that's really cool. Uh. <laughs> you're like, back up. 
<laughs> almost everything I have to respond to, I'm alone. So I do have that advantage, but it's, yeah, it, all that time I spent single pen picking has very little value to me in the field. I, I know how lock works. I can single pen pick really well if I have enough time and I can, you know, but if I need to get into some place, I've said it before on the podcast, that's, that's the last skill I go to now. There's, uh, I'm much quicker to just, I'll, I'll try uh, coffin keys, the, the, the smallest barrels coffin key, the one that looks kind of like, like a worm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just about every wafer lock I try it on, it works great. Uh, a lot of master locks I can open with it. So that one's at the ready all the time. Uh, I have a few little rakes, but I'm not very good with actually raking with a tension wrench and the rake. I actually just do better with the, the keys. So I had a little segment in my book on lock sport. Would you say, uh, feel free to, to hurt my feelings because I promise you'll, you'll be okay. Uh, how did, how do we do on that? On the uh, explanation of lock sport? I'm actually trying to remember what, it, oh, sorry. Trying to remember what so exactly I started off said. By, I started off by saying, uh, what tactical lock picking isn't. So it's not locksmithing. It's not lock sport. You know, it's not tactical breaching. Um, so so I tried my best to do a, a fair respect for all the different people in there. You got this part about competitive and then, you know, the description of me on my early stage, which is sitting in, hitting, sitting in my chair in front of the TV picking locks, uh-huh. <laughs> which I directly got from a, a video by the lock picking lawyer. Huh. He talked about his method for getting as oh, good as he did, which was he, he, he used an example of a, uh, master lotto locks and and american locks where he would just have a whole bunch and just sit there and pick them while he's watching movies with his wife or tv or something like that and i i picked that up i got a couple of ammo cans and just bought a whole bunch of locks and just sit there and do that and that's how i got where i am with single pin picking i just totally neglected the raking part but i got i gotta do more but i tell you i can after that because i ended up with I've given quite a few away, but I ended up with one whole ammo can full of uh, Master 410 Lotto Locks. Dang. <laughs> just buy a lot of used ones. But anyway, so those are my best. I can go through those. No problem. Um, but <laughs> what, are those, what do those commonly have? How many pins spools. and spools? Um, you, you're six pin. And, six pin? Uh, yeah. And if I remember right, there's a spools and serrated. I think it's just spools. Um, uh-huh. And I believe it's set. And if I remember right, one of them is a standard. I haven't torn one apart in so long. I can't remember exactly, but I believe it's pin six is a standard. Oh, okay. so it's... And the rest are all spools. If I oh. remember right. Dang. But uh, most of them, you know, it's hard for me to remember because when you're picking them, I'm just going by. I don't even actually most of the time pay attention to which pin I'm on, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling for the binder and I'm just, yeah. I'm feeling for the counter rotation and I don't care if I'm on pin one or pin six. I'm just, that's a good point. Know, yeah. Lock picking lawyer, you hear him say a pin one. Da, da, da. I'm just, what's binding? Pick it. What's binding? Pick it. Which awesome. actually, and, you know and that's, that's a great lesson. That's a great lesson. Uh, it's about the results. It's not about, you know, the process. For me, sometimes. it's always been about the feel. Um, yeah. 
I'm very, uh, it's always kind of like a math teacher would say, if you don't show your work, you're wrong. Well, no, I got the right, I got the right answer. So I'm right. (laughs) Right. I grew up a son of a mechanic. So I was learning at a young age how to blind start nuts on bolts or or bolts in a hole or, and line stuff up without being able to see when your hands contorted. So yeah, to me, it's all about the feel and the sound and I really have a hard time keeping track of where exactly I am in the lock. It's what's, which actually has hurt me on the, uh, now that I'm up to the, trying to pick the black belt level locks. Awesome. You really have to, have to have more awareness of exactly where you're at to do that. So speaking of uh, feel and sound, I have uh, a couple clients that I teach that are uh, visually blind, that they call me for a Skype call about once or twice a month and we, I, we do a video call which they can't see but i can so uh, i'll teach them how to rake how to pick how to do bypasses um and they have to do everything without sight which to be honest is not as difficult as i thought it was going to be no uh, because so much of what i teach in the field could be low lighting you know it could be around a corner that you can't see your hands could be through a gate you know that you're not you can't see the padlock on either side but you can feel it so uh this skill set is is it's just so accessible to people. Um, it's not just James Bond on TV, like in the movies. It's uh, every course that I do starts with a 60 second intro or a 60 second, what I call crash course. What, yeah. what kind of locks do you start them with? What's their first experience? Sure. So they start with a, the mace pick set from sparrowslockpicks.com, which is a $12 set. So even if you didn't take my course, super affordable for a high quality, simple, effective rake set. Um, so I hand them that and it comes with a hook pick and a rake. And it also comes with about five or six tension wrenches of different sizes. So I tell everybody here, I'll, I'll give it to you now. Here's my 60 second crash course for every course I go. Okay. Hold your padlock like this. You'll see there's a little zigzag zig and you'll see if there's a pin hanging in there, you want that pin hanging on the top, not on the bottom, not a huge deal in the field, but for class, we're going to try and keep that the pins on top for up. And I go, great. Now extend one finger. Okay, so you're holding the lock in your hand. It's up and down with the keyway. Your one finger is extended. And I go, great. Pick a tension wrench that fits pretty good. Put it in the bottom of the keyway out to about three o'clock if you're looking at, you know, 12, six, three, nine. And just place your finger on that. Great, you're halfway there. Take this little squiggly thing, put it in on top of that. And while you're applying light tension, which is barely touching the tension wrench is 1%, and permanently bending that metal is 100%. You want like 10%. So just nice nice and light with your finger. While you keep that tension with your finger, just take this little rake in and out of the keyway, up and down, kind of like a toothbrush. Eventually, your master number three padlock will pop right open. 90% of my students get, get their master number three open within 60 seconds. Sometimes people struggle for five more minutes, maybe even 10 more minutes, but it's pretty rare. So after... After I hear click, 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 click. Hey, awesome. Great. I'll tech each person individually. Then there's about five or six kind of rules of thumb that I'll go over. Like, hey, you might have had it open this whole time. You just don't know it. So occasionally press that tension bar or tension wrench down. Or sometimes I'll say um, it's most common that people will use too much tension when they're raking. So the pins will bind or overlift. Um, so I remind people nice light tension. Uh, what's the other one? Uh, master number threes will turn left or right to open. So uh, a lot of students, I'll have them switch hands and put the tension wrench at, you know, nine o'clock 
and I spin it counter uh, counterclockwise instead of clockwise. And I put the rake in and boom, pops right open. So that's my 60 second crash course. So it's so, so accessible to, to so many people. It is not just James Bond. It's like, put this in like crash course, put this in, turn it, put that in, jiggle it. Oh, it's open. Like it's that easy. Sometimes it for is low security stuff. It's that easy. Yeah. For, for the, your basic master lock, um, and quick set and stuff like that, it can be a really, mm-hmm. you've got a pretty, uh, easy way to teach it there. It sounds very approachable. The, uh, I always find myself getting too technical with people. <laughs> So, it's just my nature. You know, it's funny. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, the guy I taught with on my on one of my courses, uh, Terry, is one of my assistant instructors. Uh, he runs his own company. He does a lot of digital stuff. I do a lot of the physical stuff. Uh, but he's a great assistant, and he fully understands my curriculum. So it's it's nice that when I'm teaching a course, I can be like, "Hey, uh, teach them that block. I'm going to go work on this." So set it and forget it with him is awesome. Um. So him and I were teaching a course at one of the nation's leading tactical breaching facilities for military and law enforcement. And we're there and we got our students and I'm like, yeah, let's get them in on the ground level. Let's show them raking. Let's keep it simple. We won't talk nomenclature. You know, we'll show them the science of how this works at the end. And we get to the end and we're like, this is the science of how this works. There's a machining problem, you know, that you can only be so specific with the machining. So we exploit that flaw. And you know, here's a blown up example with a training tool of this, you know, the, the kind of lip that we create that the one pin has to rest on. And like, uh, I think four out of the five people in the class were like, oh my God, why didn't you start with that? And I'm like, what? I'm like, almost every class people are like, oh, thanks for that. That adds some value. But they were like, you should have opened with that. And I'm like, what am I missing? Almost every student really prefers like the quick crash course. And then we advance later. Turns out four out of my five students were highly technical, like advanced engineering students. And I'm like, oh, my luck. Yeah. Perfect coincidence. Like with this class, if I did it the, the usually ineffective way, they would have loved it. So yeah, they're <laughs> I got unlucky on that. Very different learning styles with some people. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Man, you should have opened with that. And I'm like, oh, almost every class says the exact opposite. So <laughs> whatever. <laughs> they still learned quite a bit. They were pretty happy. I uh, Plus. have to admit I'm one of those people and I that makes it until I get really good at something mm-hmm. I have a hard time then simplifying it because mm-hmm. I'll, I'll get into weeds on stuff until I learn what really matters and what doesn't but I mean, the first time I taught myself I didn't get into lock sport act proper for till about two years ago but Several years before that, I locked myself out of my food locker at work. And we, when I was an EMT, we were 12-hour shifts, and you can't leave. Mm-hmm. So locking mm-hmm. yourself out of your food locker means you're going to be hungry for 12 hours. I forgot my keys at home, so I went online, pulled up, uh, I believe it was the MIT Guide to Lock Picking, and cool. started reading and bending paper clips and a, a, a little, you know, one of those small flat blade screwdrivers bent it over to use as a tension tool and awesome. I uh, got myself in, but anyway, then promptly yes. did away with all. I threw those in my uh, little desk drawer and didn't use them again. But anyway, awesome. How long ago was that? Oh, over. I, I want it. I don't remember exactly what year, but I want to say it was 10 years ago or so. Just wow. Just, that's cool. But that's 
for me, I had to understand what I was doing, even mm-hmm. though when it actually came down to it at that point with a paper clip and the thing, I was mostly just poking around and banging around in there. Uh-huh. <laughs> Couldn't really feel anything. The paper clip flexes so much, but yeah. master number three can be really forgiving. And and sometimes, man, that's all that's all you need is is a crash course. I've I've done this too with um a lot of people call me and they say, Hey, I know this skill set. Um, but my wife is locked out of the house and I'm out of town. What do we do? I'm like, Well, great. Talk her through exactly what you would do. And a lot of them will go, Oh, so they'll either they'll have a tool somewhere nearby or they'll or they will source a tool. Um, and I have my, a lot of my students will call me and say, Hey, I was able to teach someone on scene without me being on scene. Like I was able to give someone some type of crash course for how to get some type of entry, whether it's, you know, a laminated piece of paper into a door jam, um, or, you know, using a pocket knife to kind of hook a latch and to pop that latch. So, uh, yeah, sometimes all you need is a crash course. Sometimes not for single pin picking. Uh, a lotto or a American 1100. That's a, that's a tough crash course to give. <laughs> it, yeah. That takes a little more time and practice and technical knowledge, I think. But yeah, I, I've taught my wife the basics, um, how mm-hmm. to get a master lock. She, when, awesome. when I got into it, she's like, okay, how does this work? She sits down, she got three different master locks open and went, okay, I, I'm good. Bye. Yeah. Done. Awesome. I'm like, all right. <laughs> that's, that's a win. That's yeah. great. She knows the basics and she can do it. And that's, that's all that she needs to know as far as she's concerned. She's not interested in the, the hobby itself, but she understands it. And I have some confidence that if she got herself locked out of the house, I could probably get her in. Tell us a little bit about your dog. I've seen the pictures and I've heard you mention her on the podcast, but. Sure, let's bring her up here. Do you record video for the shows or do you just, or you just use it? No, I re- I'm recording the video, so. So this is her. This is Arrow. Say hi. Say hello. So she was purchased with the intention off. Good girl. Plus. Very good. She was purchased with the intention of making her a, a fully fledged legitimate service dog for me. I had some very, very bad migraines uh, that started popping up towards the end of my military service. Um, And I learned that dogs can do early detection of migraines. So that's her primary purpose. Um, she is now six months old. She's a Dutch shepherd. And we, since the day I got her at eight weeks old, so two months, at two months old, uh, since the day I got her, we have been very seriously working um, advanced agility. So like how to navigate all sorts of obstacles, high, low, crossing beams, crossing bridges, all sorts of things. Uh, her basic obedience is very strong. So when to pay attention to something, when to ignore something, sit, stay, lay, you know, prolonged sitting, staying, laying down, things like that. Um, walking close by my side with like a nice loose leash that you don't have to, you know, wrestle with your dog. So she's very strong with all those things. And her secondary purpose is we might do some work with her. Uh, we might take some contracts. Uh, she's already doing bomb detection. Oh, wow. So we have a, um, I have a tennis ball that has what, uh, what they call, uh, just kind of component scent in it. So the scent of some components of some explosives, it's not, I don't have a bomb in my apartment, but I have a, like a, some chemicals like ammonium nitrate, ammonium, something oxide. I don't know. Spent carbon from uh, firearms, some gun cleaning patches, things like that. They all go into a little tennis ball. We hide the tennis ball and we give her the command and she goes, Oh, it's time to look for that. 
And so even, even here, we can train for that by ourselves. And she's getting really good at tracking that down. Uh, her trainer's very good. And much like me, uh, the trainer that I got her from, the breeder and trainer, um, he is very, very principle-based. And I found that uh, it's kind of, it's rare to find people that, you know, if you ask, you know, pick anybody in your phone book and you call them and you go, hey, uh, obviously you're a man of principle, right? Everyone says yes. Oh yeah, of course. You go, oh, tell me some of those. And I go, uh, be a good person. Uh, so the trainer that I got her from, he can list them on paper. And that's something I do too with my courses. I need my course to be modular. I need it to be low cost, low time investment. I need it to be, you know, something that you can teach others. I need it to be a baseline. I need it to be, you know, all these things. I can list them down on paper. He's the same way with his training, which is he was prior military, prior law enforcement like me. And he said, you know, we do these things in law enforcement and in military with our canine units. And he's like, I just don't know why it doesn't produce good results. So if anyone's wondering, that is why I chose him. And that's why I chose his dogs and his training. And so she's just, even for being six months old, she's just fantastically behaved, um, very smart, very eager to please. Uh, but her purpose, her primary purpose is migraine detection for me. And her secondary purpose is just to be uh, just trained in general for either hobby and or possibly doing some contract work with her like hey, there's a big event at your local stadium. And I'll go, oh, she's bomb detection certified. We'll come by. We'll, we'll do a couple hours of work and take a paycheck. Great. So that's all about her. So Dutch Shepherd, girl, I'm not familiar life. with that breed. Uh, so a lot of people mistake the Dutch Shepherds for Belgian Malinois. They're very, very similar. Uh, but the easiest way to tell them apart is she has basically, um, here, I'll un unhook here. <laughs> She basically has a brindle coat, which is kind of like a tiger stripe. Right. Come here. I was trying to figure out what she was when I saw your pictures, because wait, you could tell she had a very shepherd so kind of shape. Yeah, this kind of tiger stripe look yeah. to her. <laughs> girl, what's very girl. So it's the easiest way to tell them apart from uh, Belgian Malinois. People always say, hey, nice Malinois. I'm like, well, she's a Dutch Shepherd, but yeah, real similar. Same thing. Uh, really similar to a German Shepherd. Just a slightly different build. Yeah. Um, and the coloration, of course, is really unique. Yeah, the coloration threw me. I could see a, the, the face. Very mm -hmm. Shepherd-like. <laughs> uh, yeah, very Shepherd. Yeah, I know. I'm a big German Shepherd fan. But, uh, oh, they're great. Yeah. I, we've had two... Um, don't anymore unfortunately but and i'm terrible at training dogs for the most part oh. so but the shepherds that uh my shepherd uh sasha she was amazing we got her when my boy was well right before my boy was born mm -hmm. i only had to uh she potty trained herself basically one time she oh, started cool. to squat and she happened to be close to the sliding glass door so i picked her up and set her outside yeah. And at, from that point on, she was just like, oh, okay, we do this out here. Awesome. Scratch at the door. Um, stuff like that. She taught herself pretty much. I didn't work at it, but she knew that if I pointed towards her kennel in the backyard, she'd go in mm -hmm. and sit down so I could close the door. Just awesome. stuff awesome. like that. Just I, I've never worked with a dog that was so easy to train. So anyway. that's investment of my life by far. Yeah. And I, so uh, I read a, a study, not, not like a Google article on someone's blog, but like an actual, I, re I pulled the whole like hundred page file uh, from a medical study. 
Um, and it's the only study I looked up so far. So of course it's a sample size of one, but <laughs> within the study, they said something along the lines of uh, people that have dogs that are untrained. So no, not trained for anything, just a dog in the house. And they asked these people, does your dog act differently before you have a migraine or during the migraine? And about 50% said, absolutely, I can tell. Um, so the dogs, uh, whatever their, their tell or their sign or their signal, you know, um, is they will alert somehow to the owner, even without training. A separate question within the study was people that don't own dogs at all and people that do own dogs and the, the average uh, level of headaches and migraines for each group and the people that did own dogs, the headaches were like way down. Um, so just owning one period kind of alleviates a lot of that and a lot of a lot of headaches and even migraines are, are stress caused so of course you know who doesn't love a big right big goofy fluff ball right so uh that study was really unique there but also uh i've also learned that there's two different ways that dogs can alert to migraines at least two ways and i'm not an expert on this but this is just my research what i have found other people say is one way they can do it is if you're having a migraine something in your saliva changes either during or just before a migraine. So you can teach your dog to smell that scent in your saliva and they can alert you. Another way is if you physically act different before a migraine, they can pick up on that and you can directly teach them to alert to that difference. Uh, so for me, like if I, I noticed that either the day or a few hours before a migraine, I'm like, man, why does the bridge of my nose hurt? And I'll like, I'll squeeze it. My eyeballs too. I'll, like I'll squeeze my temples and I'm like, Oh gosh. I'm like, what is going on? And I'm like, I don't have a headache. Everything's fine. And then a couple hours later, I'm like, Oh my God, my head hurts so bad. So, uh, that's one way I can teach her where I go. Okay. This means walk over with your vest, with your medicine in it, get me to take the medicine you've alerted, you've done great. So that's one way we can do it. The saliva and, the and the physical differences. And she's just, she's great. We also have to teach her some entry skills, like maybe some raking or, <laughs> or uh, bypasses. <laughs> just jump over the fence <laughs> yeah there's videos uh, send her through a window and have her come to the front and do the push bar yeah push bar or now if like everybody's got the the lever handles yeah or the what do they call the request to exit the uh ir sensors right just walk yep. up to the door come to me well thank you for asking about her um that means a lot no i'm i'm a big dog person so that's something i had to find out about Someone asked me uh, a couple of weeks ago, they're like, hey, uh, so th th they were kind of picking on me. They're like, hey, uh, what kind of lock picking set do you have in a pouch on your dog's vest? And I'm like, oh, my God, I never thought of that. I'm like, what the heck is wrong with me? Like, how could I miss that? <laughs> so uh, she does have a vest, uh, but I got to I got to get her a little pouch where I can put, you know, some some plastic latch shims or some like a, a door gym tool or something easy in there. Nothing, nothing crazy. Not a not an 80 pound vest, but. A couple of small tools would be nice that I can't fit in my pocket. Yeah, it's not a bad idea. She's she's going around with you everywhere with a vest. I think we've made it through most of my questions. Is there anything you wanted to talk about while we're on here? Uh, nope. I'm just I'm thrilled. I love the Reddit community. Uh, I love our lock picking. It's fantastic. I think let me pull up my screen name. So if if anyone wants to chat with me while I'm on there or recognize me when I do comment. Um, about once a week, I'll pop in and check people's posts. So I am uncensored Pat P A T. I do occasionally drop by the R lock picking. 
Um, I need to start belt ranking up again. I did with a different Reddit account and then I, uh, for some, some reason, shut down that account. But I'm in there. I'll start ranking up again soon. Uh, I have a book out, at least one book. My second book will be out. It's not on lockpicking, but my second book will be out in a couple months. Uh, if you want my book or my online course or my in-person courses, uh, the next course that I have open is Jennifer March is in April, and it's just outside Memphis, Tennessee. If anyone's in that area and wants to attend one of my in-person courses, that would be a great chance at, at a super cool facility. Um, and how do they? It. You can. How do they reach you yeah, for that? Easiest way to find me, uh, the home base is the website, um, and you can type the whole thing out, which is uncensoredtactical.com, one word, no space. Uh, or you can use the shortcut, which is utac.io, utac.io. Um, that's the easiest way to find me is the website. That's got a link to the paperback and the digital version of my book through Amazon. That's got all the dates for all the courses in 2021 that are available. Um, it's got all of my entries as far as my podcast episodes. You can listen directly on my site or you can find my podcast on any of your podcatchers. Um, I'm also the most active on Instagram. I don't really do Twitter, although I have an account. I'm not on Facebook at all. Um, if you want to email me any type of feedback, uh, a long format for email is a good way to get in touch with me. If you're like, I have a 10 paragraph question. Great. Email me. Uh, that's easy. That's pat at utac.io. And those are all the ways to find me and the things that I'm involved in. So, uh, man, I just, I love meeting internet people in real life. I think it's so cool. So I just, I love when people from the podcast come to my courses. It's a, it's a great experience. I am very unorthodox. I don't do PowerPoint. Uh, I don't do lectures. When people show up, we get hands-on real value right off the bat. And we continue that through the whole course. And it's very laid back. Um, specifically, one of the things I avoid is uh, a lot of instructors, especially in a tactical world, will say, you know, hey, I have a question. How many people do thing A? And they're like, I do thing A. And the instructor will be like, that's stupid. <laughs> really? And, and I do, very, yeah, very, especially in the shooting world too, in the tactical world, very common where instructors will poke fun of one student or they'll ask a question and then ostracize people that answer. And which I hate, I absolutely hate it. I detest that. So I try my very best. As soon as every student walks in the door, I'm like, hello, I'm Pat. Pleasure to meet you. I'm smiling. I'm excited. I got goosebumps just thinking about it. I love teaching. I love interacting. And I learn from the students, too. So there's all sorts of times where a student will say, hey, will this work? And I'm like, I have no idea. Go for it. And they do. And it works. And I'm like, yes. So I try my very best to be uh, open and engaging and positive. Um, and I try not to be an, uh, you know, jerk. Sorry. <laughs> um, One thing I gathered uh, um, that I just remembered I kind of wanted to touch on. Yeah. In your courses, I've noticed uh -huh. you mentioned on the podcast that you do a lot of hands-on, real doors, real yes. stuff. Not Some people don't, yeah. The practical at the desk. and mm -hmm. So how many problems do you have getting that approved at facilities you want to teach at? Do they... Huh. I mean, have you ever run across a problem with that? I, I haven't run across that problem yet just because so many of the courses that I teach are hosted by people that are interested in the skill set. So usually that's, that's not a problem. They're like, hey, welcome to the facility. We're glad you're here. Go for it. Usually they're fine with that. Uh, another reason I have avoided that problem is because I don't really rent out spaces, if that makes sense. So I won't, I won't say... 
hey, I'm teaching in Austin, Texas in December. Uh, I'm going to rent out a conference room. And then I have to call the hotel and say, hey, uh, this weird question. Uh. So the way I've avoided that is because a lot of times when I'm teaching, it's specifically hosted by the people that are requesting me and it's at one of their facilities. So that's how I've avoided that yeah. problem. Another point is I've attended, I try and attend one a year, uh, but life is crazy. So I've attended uh, more than I, two stand out in my head, two specific private courses on lock picking uh, that were very expensive, very time consuming, but I went and I was honored to go. And both of the instructors for both of the lock picking courses I attended um, in the private sector, um, they showed the PowerPoints, they talked about lock picking. They were like, hey, here's a bunch of padlocks, here's a rake set, ready, set, go. And neither of them, like we had doors in the classroom that we could slip the latch. Neither of them talked about latch slipping. Both of them talked about, hey, this is how you could get into a car. And I looked out the window and I'm like, there's a hundred cars and we own all of them. I'm like, come on. And just, they just never put hands and tools to vehicles or hands and tools to doors. And I thought it was bizarre. So, um, not to, you know, pat my own back too hard, but there are people out there that will take a lot of your money and they'll give you a product and you'll learn how to lock pick and you'll leave. Uh, but I, there's no way that they reach their full potential for how to give you a skill set to bring into the field to use the day that you leave the course. So that's, I don't know if I'm kind of beating this dead horse, but I really, really try and bring usable, actual value to every student that I teach. Yeah, I, I think from the description of your courses that I've heard and from your book, I think you really do. But I think there is a, there's a couple of problems with most people being able to teach that way. When you deal with like the lock sport community, we have some pretty standard rules of, you know, don't mm -hmm. pick other people's locks unless you have yeah. exact explicit and, permission. And, and I'm a completely on board with that for the record. Yeah. But if you are renting a facility to mm -hmm. teach, that's probably a lot harder than if, you know, like in your case, yeah. you're going to the people that want to learn. So yeah. that's, that's a very different thing. So that, that was where I was like, how is he getting permission from these conference centers to just go pick their locks? Yeah. <laughs> I try to stay away from, I still to this date after three years of, of open enrollment, public teaching, uh, I still have never rented out a conference room to teach. So that's the biggest way that I avoid that is I don't rent a third party's location. That, that makes perfect sense. And as long as people are okay with the risks involved with like learning on their own car or whatnot, mm -hmm. that's, that's the big thing. You gotta, you gotta know your risk there. There is a potential you can damage your car and you can damage your lock. But <laughs> I, I, I know, uh, the, uh, one of the rules in the locksport community is, uh, don't pick a lock in use. Um, mm -hmm. Rule number two, <laughs> I don't, I will admit I broke it when I was first learning my front door. One of the, the first ones was spool pins I ever picked. It's the only one I knew that oh. around that, that had was my front door lock. Cool. So uh -huh. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to find out. Um, there's, and it teaches you something very different, you know, picking at a bench and you touch on this new book, picking, um, in hand or picking at a desk with a vice, it is, I know you've discussed this in your book and in your podcast, it is extremely different. Even if you're not stressed out, 
it is extremely different mm -hmm. when you are trying to kneel down in front of a door or a gate and you've got you know the door jam over here and it's getting in the way of your tension wrench and that's the way you need to rotate <laughs> and yeah and then there's okay you've unlocked the lock but it takes more force to than uh you get used to picking on a vice and you pick that lock and that dead core just swings over. But now you're operating with a deadbolt or a yeah. key and knob and you've got to actually push past that. You may not even realize you've picked it. Uh, the, the lock uh, wobbling in the knob when a key and knob. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a very different skill set, I think, in my personal experience, which admittedly is limited, but... Oh. We got video too. Let me show but you I, this. So I, even I, uh, in the absence of of really good full doors, I have a, a company that I use. Um, Agorist Woodwork makes these for me uh, specifically. And these are, I have a push door and a pull door. And the nice thing about these is you'll check out, I'm going to give you guys a trade secret here. You see that? What's on the side there? So you, have, you can see into the, the side of where the latch goes. So it's not such a big deal for pin picking, but if you close a door and you see how that latch is supposed to operate, you can put your finger in there and kind of push and you'll see, oh, the latch doesn't go in. But if you watch, I'll get a little closer here. You if can you overset pop it. the door in. You can overset that dead latch and then you can go, oh, I got it. That so, is, yeah, that's an excellent training tool for bypasses. Those look like uh, you had some smart key locks in there in that one. Uh, this one is quick set. Yeah, this one is a smart key setup. Uh, the other one I have here is just a standard pick set, so you can rake and pick that pretty easily for the uh, pull door. Um, but yeah, it's even at, even at the absence of vehicles and absence of real doors, I have things that we can do. And even if there's only one door that we can access, like a, a simple bathroom door, excuse me, sorry, on site, I'll bring doorknobs with me and I'll say, this is a privacy lock. Here's how you open it. You push the pin or you, you know twist with a little screwdriver, you get in. Um, Great, let's all do that. Okay, we're done. Great, next lesson. Let's take that off. Take the screwdriver, put on a brand new doorknob and say, hey, totally different challenge. Now what do you do? So we're still able to, I mean, it's a really modular skill set. You can still adjust and use different locks and different knobs. So that's how I, even, even if there's a slight limitation, I'm still able to get people as much hands-on as possible. Yeah, it's much better than the standard uh, locksmith practice display board that that you quite often see, which has nothing around it. And it's just a board that they stick them in. That's only yeah, marginally more difficult than a vice. You know, that one actually has. Is... Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, I was just saying that one actually has stuff around the door. It's mounted and yeah. gives you that extra bit of real challenge. So when you, uh, I, one of the courses I went to had a ton of just knob on wood. That's it. Just one little square of wood, one little knob in it. And as soon as the keyway spun, they were like, hey, successful entry. Well, the problem is if we lock this, let's say we're let's say we're in the process of unlocking it. And if I put some pressure pushing this door in and I try to spin this to unlock it, well, now there's pressure on that bolt. So you've got the keyway free spinning but you really have to bend that tension wrench to get it open. And that's a lesson all in it, all in itself. So I think it's, it's crazy that you can teach a class how to, how to do quote unquote, make entry on ooh, that off plus all the way. I think it's crazy that you can teach a class 
using just a small training device and never touch a real door. It's it's bizarre to me. Yeah, if you're actually training to to make entry, you really have to get some hands-on time, I think, with real locks. So it's different than what you, when you're training somebody for just lock sport, right? If you're doing just lock sport, you can do the, the theoretical and then let them go play and practice on their locks on their bench or whatever. But um, a practical entry approach like yours really requires uh, hands-on because even, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've read your book and it, it is excellent. But until people Thank actually you. out there and get hands-on to practice these techniques that you've got in here, that's, you know, they're not going to really understand until they actually do. And that's where I'm sure your courses <laughs> come in very handy. So I'd like to uh, give a really short overview of the book, if you don't mind. Oh, go ahead. Um, we haven't talked about that yet. So the book was designed to be about 10 chapters of specific patterns or principles of my curriculum. And it's about 10 more chapters, roughly, of case studies. And they're kind of mixed randomly throughout the book. So it's not just half and half kind of, and I tried very much to make sure it's not dry. So the biggest compliment that I've received uh, is that it's readable and digestible. So a lot of people have said, hey, this was, although there's a, it's, you know, value dense in each lesson, they were like, hey, the language in which you used and the met, you know, the format in which you write was really easy to, to digest. Like it was, it was like reading a conversation I've had a lot of people say. So I'm very thankful about that. And uh, some of the chapters in there that have probably the most use would be um, a lot of people have been very, very happy with the tool layout chapter where I say, these are all the tools I carry and how and why and where to get them. Uh, And a lot of people are also really, really drawn to the target assessment chapter, which I put later in the book. Um, So I tried to organically say, here's me making an entry. Great. Hey, here's a cool pattern that, that pops up. Oh, hey, here's me making another entry. Oh, there's kind of a pattern in that. Cool. And at the end, I try and go, here's the nuts and bolts of specifically step-by-step how we approach a target in order so that you weren't taking that format in the beginning and going, let me try and shove this case study into that order. Uh, okay, let me, so it was very, or, I tried for it to be very organic that you're kind of learning with me. So that's kind of the layout of the book. It's about 300 pages. It's a big book. Uh, yeah. I went as big as, as a publisher would do, which is about the size of a standard eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. Yeah, that's it right uh, there. Really big. It was very important to me that I did all color photos. Uh, the publisher was like, okay, we're going to do a uh, six by eight book, black and white. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Where did you get that idea? No. <laughs> as big as we can print, full color, every single page. So uh, uh, again, hopefully that's a theme for the for the audience, but value is a big is a big deal for me so that's the layout of the book that's hopefully what you'll get out of it and uh, i hope everybody enjoys and i hope everybody uh, even just listening to the podcast got a little bit of value out of this yeah i i certainly hope so too but um i can highly recommend the book for those of you watching it is uh I'm honored thank you it is very well laid out and um i didn't mention it but it does what you said is true it it I can see where they got it. You read it. It's very conversational and the stories really do a good job of illustrating the point and keeping you interested in the material. It's not just all dry technical data. You're, you're telling a story, relating that. Um, 
it's you know and your language is very i don't know how to put it but it's just like you're talking it's not like when people write it's more like a conversation <laughs> you know people well, sometimes a lot of books you know you, you talk to somebody and they talk one way and then they write another i'm guilty of that mm -hmm. very much but it, reading your book is more like uh, you're talking to the listener i think and i like I said, I made it through it all in one day, and I am not a big reader. So, <laughs> except for chapter well, one, <laughs> I read the rest of it all today. So, yeah. Well, I'd be happy to ask what um what stuck out to you, like maybe a favorite chapter or something you didn't expect, or something kind of unique. Is there something that kind of stands out in your brain? The one thing I had never. Sorry, I don't think I was away from my mic there. I got a really good kick out of. Uh, chapter here well the section here you go through from uh chapter five which is the case study on the suicide by pills ah okay uh -huh. and then which is oh, about the lady a big who, failure of mine yeah <laughs> i don't know that i call that a failure failure but it between that and the the rest of this where you go through all of the that looking for the obvious you know the posted codes the uh tools the key on the door sill or or nearby um there's a lot of stuff there that i have seen but i never really put into my head as something to do when you're trying to make entry hmm. does, do you, does it make sense to take a couple of minutes and look around for those obvious things that a lot of us are guilty of doing um I'd never actually seen it illustrated quite that well. So I really, I like cool. that. I learned a lot out of that. And the story of <laughs> getting a tap on the shoulder. <laughs> yeah. But I really appreciate that that aspect of the book is, um, that's the one thing that really stood out to me is not any one particular section, but the overall approach of here, here's what happened. Here's uh, the mistake. And here's what I learned from it and how to move on from there. So, because I think that's an approach that you're, you're teaching people how to approach things and how to learn yeah. and continue to grow, not just here's your skill set, yeah. go, go play. You know, it's, it's, here's a, here's a method and here's the tools you need and here's how to, to go on, look at your failures, analyze them. What could have been done different? What can you do in the future to make that better? Yeah. Awesome. So I'm honored. Thank you. I actually learned that from a, um, I learned that from a, a martial arts instructor of mine who said, um, who said, if I'm doing my job right, you should end up being better than I am. He said, if I'm doing anything besides that, I'm wrong. And it's, I think I wrote about that in the book too, which is it's common that like in martial arts movies or like you see on TV where they're like, Oh, you can't learn that technique until you're a black belt. Oh, it's secret. Ugh. I give my students every possible piece of information I can, uh, even if it's not related to the current curriculum. And they're like, Hey, what about this lock? I'm like, here's everything I know about it. And if I can't answer it when the course is over, I'll send you an email. I'll show you where you can find it. Like my purpose is I give you everything I can so that you can go sky's the limit. So that's my goal, which is, uh, I don't, uh, some, some companies do it for marketing. Some companies do it because it's really important, especially again in the gun world, which is, you know, take the basic shooting course, 
okay, once you do that, now you can take the advanced shooting course. I don't have anything like that set up and I don't really plan on it because I want anybody to be able to walk in the door. I want to teach advanced and beginners at the same time. And I don't want to hold back the advanced people and I don't want to overwhelm the beginners. So the whole, again, the principle is I want everybody to be able to learn. I want everyone to be able to have value. Um, so I give everybody everything that I have. Um, again, I forgot how I got on this track, but that's where we ended up. I'm sorry. <laughs> we were just talking about <laughs> talking about the book. So um, sorry. no, uh, I really appreciate your time. And uh, I hope your dog hasn't been sitting there for too long. <laughs> Looks like yeah, getting she's ready out. to go out, but yeah. she's happy. Uh, I know my dogs are actually right outside the door. I just heard one of them there begging for their dinner. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, end the recording now. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this conversation with Pat. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you did too. Uh, this show is only possible because of your support. So if you value the podcast, please support it by sending in any news, links, information that you have that's Locksport related. You can send it to podcast at thelocksportscast.com. Uh, you can go to thelocksportscast.com and click on the support or contact tabs and you can find all my information there to send me the information that you have. I, that's a long-winded way of saying that. Don't forget to uh, share the podcast with your lockpicking friends. Leave a comment and a thumbs up if you're viewing this on YouTube. Just uh, you can subscribe or donate on Patreon or PayPal. Patrons do get the episodes as early as I complete them, which sometimes is a day early on these interview ones. It can be up to a week early. If you uh, support the show with a donation or information that I can use on the show, I will give you a credit on the show and in the show notes. So thank you for your support. And remember, keep it legal. <laughs>